From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Black unemployment is at a record low level. We talked to an economist who says that's a good thing, but it's complicated. And after years of a brutal civil war, some Arab countries are moving to normalize relations with Syria. Find out more. Plus, it's been nearly 30 years since Tupac Shakur died. A new docuseries takes a look at how the icon was shaped by his mother. All the revolutionary spirit, the education, the world knowledge about human rights and history, that all came through a fainted to Tupac. It's Sunday, April 16th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. More than 50 people are reported dead and hundreds more have been injured since fighting broke out yesterday across Sudan's capital, Khartoum. The international community is condemning the conflict between Sudan's army and a powerful paramilitary group. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwalter reports that neither side is backing down. A bloody power struggle between Sudan's army and the rapid support forces has turned much of Khartoum and other cities into a battlefield. Air Force jets are patrolling the skies as gun battles break out below, following months of mounting tensions. The army says it will soon defeat the RSF, which is claiming to have taken over key sites. Both sides are accusing each other of attacking first, while the civilian toll across the country continues to mount. The military and the RSF are engaged in a bitter battle over who will lead during Sudan's fragile transition to democracy that for now appears lost. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. Authorities in Louisville, Kentucky, looking for the gunman who fired into a crowd at a city park last night, leaving two people dead and four others wounded. This latest mass shooting follows the shooting at Louisville's Old National Bank, where a gunman killed five people and injured eight others. Mayor Craig Greenberg is calling it an unspeakable week of tragedy. On Monday, we lost five of our fellow citizens to a horrific act of workplace gun violence. And now, five days later, we're at another scene of a reckless act of gun violence. Police are asking the public to come forward with any information on this latest shooting in Louisville. Authorities in the small town of Dadeville, Alabama, are expected to give more details later today about a shooting that left multiple people injured last night. The shooting reportedly happened during a birthday party for a 16-year-old. Abortion rights rallies have been taking place around the country this weekend. The rallies were planned in response to a Texas judge's decision to reverse FDA approval of a common abortion pill. The Supreme Court has put a temporary stay on that ruling. NPR's Caitlin Ratty has more. On the steps of the Supreme Court, abortion rights supporters said they were outraged by the legal assault on mifepristone. The pill is commonly used in medication abortions, which account for more than half of abortions in the U.S. Brittany House says an abortion improved her life. I'm standing before you today, 11 years later, safe, healthy, financially stable, in a loving relationship. I'm planning my wedding this year, so super excited about that. But again, I wouldn't have any of those things if it weren't for safe legal access to abortion. Nearby, abortion rights opponents also gathered. The Supreme Court stay puts the Texas ruling on hold through Wednesday. Caitlin Raddy, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Tomorrow is a very busy sports day in Boston. The marathon gets underway first. Then there's the traditional Marathon Monday Red Sox game at Fenway Park with a morning start. And tomorrow night at the Garden, it's a Bruins playoff game. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox says getting around will be a challenge and you will need to be Patient. Take public transportation and give yourself plenty of time to get where you need to. With all the thousands of people coming into the city, this is a very busy and exciting time, but we still need the public support to make sure that we're all safe. Cox says Boston Marathon spectators should limit what they bring to the race. Security checkpoints will be set up. Prohibited items include backpacks and coolers. Boston could soon follow in New York City's footsteps and appoint a rat czar. New York filled that position last week. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn told the Boston Herald that he is talking to Mayor Michelle Wu about creating a similar job here. Flynn is planning a trip to New York to learn about the pest control operations there. He called Boston's rat problem a public health emergency. Dogs have a new place to lead their people to drink, snack, and hang out. WBUR's Andrea Shea has more on New England's first indoor-outdoor dog park and bar in Everett. The 10,000-square-foot space, named Park 9, has on-and-off-leash play areas where pet parents can order drinks paired with dog treats. Co-founders Tess Kohansky and Emily Gussie say their golden retriever Nora inspired the idea. We understand this concept isn't for every dog and it's not for every person, but for the ones who want to get out there and have their dog get social, it's a great space to come out and meet new people and have a great beverage. Employees working as park rangers will help watch the pups. Owners need to pre-register their pets and provide proof of vaccinations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It is 49 degrees in Boston. Some fog around, some patchy drizzle for a while this morning, then a slight chance of heavier rain and highs in the mid-50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. A federal case challenging access to a common abortion pill is reviving discussions about old anti-obscenity laws. 150 years ago, what's known as the Comstock Act banned lots of things related to sex and reproductive health that are seen as quite routine today. Until recently, that law had been largely forgotten or ignored, but it's being cited again in the abortion pill case. NPR Sarah McCammon joins us now. Good morning, Sarah. Hey, Aisha. So what exactly is the Comstock Act? Because a lot of people will probably have no idea, like myself. Fair enough. And it's not something people talked about a whole lot until more recently. But it is a federal law that dates back to 1873. And it prohibits using the mail to spread information or materials deemed obscene. Now, that term obscenity isn't defined, but the statute did explicitly include anything used to cause an abortion. And that's where it becomes relevant here. The official title of the law is much longer, but it's known as the Comstock Act because of a Connecticut man named Anthony Comstock. 
And I talked to Lauren MacGyver Thompson. She's a historian at Kennesaw State University in Georgia. And here's how she described Comstock. He was from a very religious family. And apparently while he was serving in the army, he was really horrified by the amount of porn and alcohol (laughs) he saw his fellow soldiers consuming. So she says after the Civil War, Comstock wound up in New York and became an activist leading efforts to oppose those types of behaviors. McIver Thompson told me that as part of that work, Comstock assembled a large collection of items he found objectionable, which he'd obtained in places like brothels and sex shops. And he took it all to Washington, D.C., He has a very extensive collection of porn, sex toys, quote-unquote obscene books, and of course contraceptive and abortive fashion devices. And he invites the congressman to come and look at this display (laughs) of shocking items. And Aisha, that display must have worked because Comstock persuaded Congress to pass restrictions on a lot of things, including sending those materials through the mail. Then many states also passed their own versions of Comstock laws around this time. So where do these laws stand now in 2023? Right. So you should know, even in the 19th and early 20th centuries, when Comstock laws were being more heavily enforced, MacGyver Thompson told me that they were really largely unpopular and there were efforts to repeal them. But the Comstock Act was not formally repealed by Congress. Instead, a long series of court cases eventually overturned much of it, maybe most famously a case that legalized contraception for married couples. That was Griswold v. Connecticut. And the rest of Comstock has largely been ignored or seen as unenforceable because of evolving case law around issues like free speech and privacy rights. Last year, the Justice Department under President Biden issued a memo stating that Comstock does not apply to the mailing of abortion pills as long as the sender intends for them to be used legally. And the FDA under Biden has been allowing that since 2021 officially. Okay, so let's talk about the high-profile abortion pill case that the Supreme Court is now involved in. How does Comstock play into that case? Well, as you know, anti-abortion groups are trying to overturn the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the abortion pill, Mifepristone, and do away with those recent rule changes that have made the pills more available. And they're in part citing the Comstock Act to try to do that. Erin Hawley is an attorney for the plaintiffs. What the Comstock law says is that it is improper to mail things that induce or cause abortions, which is precisely the action the FDA took in 2021 when it permitted the mailing of abortion drugs. And the federal judge in Texas where this case originated, Matthew Kaczmarek, appeared to agree with that argument in his ruling just over a week ago. As this case has been working its way through the federal courts, Aisha, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals also issued a decision that seemed friendly to anti-abortion groups' reading of Comstock. You mentioned that the Comstock Act had been seen mostly as a thing of the past. What would it mean if anti-abortion groups do succeed in bringing it back? Legal experts I've been talking to note that the language in Comstock is quite vague and arguably could include a lot of things. For example, Comstock was once used to ban many things we take for granted today, like the distribution of information about birth control. Mary Ziegler is a law professor at the University of California, Davis. I cannot underscore how broad the text is. It could encompass any device used in an abortion. And Ziegler says that reading of Comstock could have implications for people in all 50 states, even where abortion is legal right now. 
So in effect, which is what anti-abortion advocates have known for a while, it could mean a national ban on all abortions. Because if you can prosecute anyone for putting anything in the mail related to abortion, there is no abortion in the United States that takes place without something put in the mail, right? There are no abortion providers making like DIY drugs and medical devices. So both legal experts and abortion rights advocates tell me they're concerned that some federal courts are willing to consider restricting abortion pills based on this 19th century anti-obscenity law. That's NPR national correspondent Sarah McCammon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's take a short trip back in time. But very importantly, for for Black, the Mm -hmm. best unemployment we've ever had. Ever. That's then-President Donald Trump in 2020 at a roundtable for Black History Month. The economy was humming along. It was just a month before the COVID national emergency slammed on the brakes, and Black unemployment was at 6%. Three years later, a different time, a different president. Black and Hispanic unemployment are near record lows. When President Joe Biden said that last February, Black unemployment was 5.7 percent. A month later, it hit a record low of 5 percent, though still higher than the overall unemployment rate of 3.5 percent. So is this a victory? Gary Hoover is a professor of economics at Tulane University and studies how race, economics, and public policy intersect. He goes by Hoover, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. So so let's start there. Like, should the U.S. take a victory lap over a 5% Black unemployment rate? I think we could take a victory lap. I think it would probably be a bit premature. And there are still complications to that number. But it is something. I guess the question is, is that the best it's going to ever get? Mm. Well, because the thing about the black unemployment rate is that it is stubbornly higher than the overall employment rate. Is that still the case? And why is that the case? Right. And that's why I would be cautious about taking a victory lap in that even though black unemployment is at its lowest ever, it is still higher and stubbornly so, which would mean that there's probably something systemic going on in that if this is the best we're ever going to be able to do to get black unemployment to be a bit less than double that of white unemployment, then I would probably be a bit more cautious about calling this uh, a slam dunk. What can you tell about the quality of the jobs um, that people have in the industries that black people tend to dominate? Right. Well, it's going to be in the service industries and therein is one of the problems We're not talking about high-end tech jobs here. We're talking about jobs in food service industry that are going to be lower on the wage distribution. And so you're going to have a job, questionable whether or not that job is going to be full-time, and the wage is going to be lower. How does the gig economy come into play about that? Because people can do ride shares and deliveries if they can't find a job at a food service place or things like that. Like, so how does that impact this? Right. And we have a thing of people being unemployed, but there's also underemployment in that even if you did have a job, it's not enough and it's not paying a wage that allows you to sufficiently pay all of your bills. And so you have to supplement that job 
with some type of part-time slash gig employment. And that is not going to show up in any statistics that we're measuring, but matters greatly. Mm. Are there places, um, cities in, in the U.S. where uh, Black unemployment, even though, you know, overall it's lower, it's like extremely high, especially when you start breaking it down by gender. Why is it worse in urban areas? We're finding less opportunities for employment, and we're also finding that the educational differences that are happening, as you mentioned, as it relates to gender, are even more so amplified. I am sure that Biden and Trump, um, who both are going to be running for president in 2024, are going to take credit for Black employment gains um, during their tenures. Are either of them, like, responsible for this? Well, it's really, really hard to say that one person or one you know, body of persons are responsible for what's happening here. If you didn't have access to PPP money during the recession, what were you going to do but seek employment? Given that there's a difference in savings rates and there's a difference in household wealth, Blacks were going to be less likely to be able to weather the pandemic storm had no other alternative because they didn't have resources to fall back on. So they had to get out there and work. Yeah, what else were they going to do? Yeah, yeah. So you're taking credit that people have, with without any real savings, have to go and find some way to survive? You're going to take credit for that? Questionable. But I think they will, yes. by the way. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if it's deserved. I think they, they absolutely will do that. That's Gary Hoover, or Hoove. He is a professor of economics at Tulane University. Thank you so much for joining us. Man, thank you. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up in about 15 minutes, WBUR's Amanda Beeland has the story on yesterday's commemoration of the 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombings. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Join Science Friday this Tuesday, April 18th at City Space for a free family-friendly science fair exploring the way educators, engineers, and scientists are trying to find solutions to climate change. For information, go to wbur.org slash events. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is set to deliver a speech tomorrow at the New York Stock Exchange. The speech is expected to set the stage for talks over raising the government's debt ceiling. President Biden is demanding House Republicans raise the limit without conditions. Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg is calling it an unspeakable week of tragedy. Two people are dead and four others are wounded. In another mass shooting in the city, nearly a week ago, a gunman killed five bank employees. And authorities in the small town of Dadeville, Alabama, are expected to give more details later today about a shooting that left multiple people injured last night. The shooting reportedly happened during a birthday party for a 16-year-old. 
I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Twelve years after the start of the Syrian uprising that evolved into a horrific and bloody civil war, there's a movement in the Arab world to normalize relations. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad is being welcomed back into the fold of some Arab nations. Saudi Arabia is expected to invite Bashar al-Assad to the Arab League summit next month. Syria and Saudi Arabia are resuming consular services and flights for the first time since the 2011 uprising and civil war. This after at least 300,000 civilian deaths, thousands imprisoned, and tens of thousands tortured, all documented by the UN and various rights groups. Yet Damascus announced that it would reopen its embassy in Tunisia last week. This amid talks to allow Syria to rejoin the Arab League. And this follows the United Arab Emirates, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia also being on track to restore diplomatic relations with the Syrian regime. We're joined now by Dahlia Dasa Kay. She's a senior fellow at UCLA's Berkle Center for International Relations. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So you've written about how Syria's return to the fold seems irreversible at this point, but you you also caution that it won't benefit the Syrian people. Why do you say that? Well, I think at this stage, you know, it's hard to know. There are potential benefits that could be in the works if uh, Arab states actually get some returns for this normalization. So the hope is that it would bring more humanitarian relief and eventually reconstruction to a country devastated by the civil war where over 90% of the population live under the poverty line. Probably, you know, um, less realistically, there is hope that there could be some prisoner releases and the possibility of refugees returning um, and maybe a crackdown on the drug smuggling. But I think the reason I'm a bit pessimistic is that, you know, Assad doesn't exactly have a great track record when it comes to humanitarian gestures. He's been one of the most brutal authoritarian leaders in the region. Uh, You know, Assad is frankly making a lot of money from drug smuggling. So all all of these potential benefits are countered by the continuing trend lines that would work against any benefits from this normalization. Human rights activists are pushing for Arab states and others like Turkey that are reengaging with Syria to push for reforms. But is that a reasonable ask, given that some of these Arab states themselves have issues with human rights? 
I think the biggest fear is that this normalization and rehabilitation of this brutal dictator will ensue with no accountability and no returns for this effort. And, you know, let's face it, the country's leading the normalization effort, starting with the UAE, followed by others, Tunisia this week. You know, our authoritarian states... Uh, the rehabilitation of Assad would be the really tragic bookend to the Arab uprisings from over a decade ago. So I think there's a lot of feeling that some of the drivers of this normalization, you know, this is less about helping the Syrian people and more about the authoritarian consolidation in this region, making sure that Syria doesn't fall into a failed state situation again that could disrupt the neighborhood. And most definitely, uh, there is not an interest in a democratic future for Syria among these neighboring states. Well, with these countries, like each focusing on their own concerns when they're, you know, deciding to resume relations, does that make asking for reforms or, as you said, accountability, does that make that impossible? Because, as you said, they just they're just trying to get a stable state and not have the issues in Syria, you know, go over to their borders. I think accountability is not really the priority for the Arab states and other countries like Turkey. They are really being driven more by economic and security interest and in some cases ideological interest. And, you know, they're also dealing with priorities at home. But are you optimistic that the West can do or at least seek some accountability where you know, these Arab countries are, are not doing that? Well, you know, if we think of the United States, for example, the official stance is that they are not uh, supportive of these normalization efforts. The official position is that normalization with the Assad regime should not take place before there's political progress and a political solution to the conflict in Syria, and that there should be some accountability for these war crimes. Uh, But, you know, there is also a recognition that there's not a whole lot that the United States or the West can do. The region has decided to move on. Um, Unfortunately, from their perspective, this is not a Middle East where the U.S. does call the shots all the time anymore. You have very active Chinese and Russian involvement. Uh, The most that the United States can do and which it is likely to do is continue its own sanctions against the regime. Uh, Sanctions have also hurt the Syrian people. So I think there'll be a lot of focus on how to help the Syrian people while trying to keep whatever pressure is still possible on the regime itself. That's Dahlia Dasa Kay. She's a senior fellow at UCLA's Berkeley Center for International Relations. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Aisha. Later today on All Things Considered... The Lullaby Project. Music students in South Carolina help new mothers who are incarcerated write songs for their babies. You can tune in later for that story by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. A new documentary explores the origins of a beloved song and the life of the musician behind it, one of the most influential artists ever. Tupac Shakur. When I was young, me and my mama had beef, 17 years old, kicked out on the streets. 
Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Dear Mama is a five-part series starting Friday on FX. It's a dual biography of Tupac and his mama, Afeni Shakur. She was a key figure in the Black Panther Party of the 60s and 70s, later struggled with addiction, and then kept her son's legacy alive after Tupac's murder in 1996 until her own death. The series is directed by Alan Hughes, who shot some of Tupac's videos back in the day and went on to have a big Hollywood career with films like Menace to Society and The Book of Eli. In tracking Tupac's story from drama student to death row record superstar, Hughes set a very specific goal. Find the answers to the riddle of Tupac through his mother. So all the revolutionary spirit, the education, the intellectual curiosity, um, the, the world knowledge about human rights and history, that all came through a feigny to, to Tupac. And his Panther uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters, there was an expectation for Tupac placed upon him when he was born. He was born a prince. No one knew that either. Uh, they thought he was going to be the leader of the new African Panther movement. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, and fortunately, there was this little thing called rap that derailed that program. And even as a crack fiend, mama, you always was the black queen, mama. Afeni dealing with the struggles and the, the pain that she was dealing with, she ends up turning um, to crack, to drugs. So there was also like a lot of pain there. I, you know, yeah. it was a lot that both of them were carrying in that relationship. Yeah, there was a lot of inherited trauma on both parts. Um, you got issues with, uh, you know, men letting you down, fathers not being there. But for Tupac, when your mother is also an addict, you got to grow up real fast. You know, when you're seven, you're 21 all of a sudden because you're seeing and hearing things um, that maybe you shouldn't be hearing or seeing. Just being uh, born in, uh, as a Panther baby, you have to watch out for feds. You know, they put you on the stoop at eight years old to watch the block for undercover agents. No kid should be subjected to that. I thought I knew why Tupac was paranoid just by knowing him. Young black male, hip hop, Hennessy, weed. No, <laughs> that's not yeah. what it was. That's yeah. not what it was. I hear Brenda's got a baby, but Brenda's barely got a brain. A damn shame, the girl can hardly spell her name. That's not our problem, that's up to Brenda's family. Well, let me show you how it affects our whole community. Now, Brenda really never knew her moms, and her dad was a junkie putting death into his arms. It's sad, cause I bet Brenda doesn't even know. Just cause you're in the ghetto doesn't mean you can't grow. People always have this conversation about Tupac where they go, yeah, he was doing Brenda's Got a Baby, but then, you know, he switched it up and it was thug life. It was this and that. But it seems like to me, I think watching this and the more that I, I think about Tupac is that 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 question of was he really a thug or was he really a revolutionary I don't know if that's the right question, but it does seem like he was ready to fight for what he believed in. No doubt. He was, he definitely was a warrior. Yeah. You know, um, uh, doesn't mean he was hit to the streets the way they move. Um, there's a difference between a drug dealer and a revolutionary. You know, uh, Snoop says it best. He goes, Tupac couldn't bring gangbanging to hip hop, but what he could bring to it was his military mindset and his revolutionary and his community organizing mindset. Part of it is when you come from abject poverty, I'm talking about extreme poverty, where you 
go many years with not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. People don't know that about Tupac. When you start to get some a taste of success, you know, you succumb to this life of hip-hop a little bit. But, you know, also you're becoming a rock star. Yeah. You're becoming a rock star. And rock stars, number one thing with rock stars, you're going to give in to the excesses at a certain point. So he had to go there as part of his progression as a man. And unfortunately, his life was cut short at 25, a baby. A baby, a baby. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I have to say, I was surprised, like, when I heard you were doing this <laughs> documentary. Mm-hmm. And I was, because I was like, Alan Hughes, wait a minute, didn't, didn't Tupac fight? or get into it with him and get arrested like um there was a conflict between you and and tupac a, a falling yeah. out that was violent i won't get into the thing that happened because it's in the movie there yeah. was a falling out of disagreement over him in in our film he was cast at man society he was very helpful towards getting that film greenlit and um it just didn't work out and we had to go our separate ways he wasn't happy about the way that happened um and no when i got uh, brought in or asked to do this from the family and the estate. I didn't want to do it for some of those reasons. Like, oh man, you know, people are gonna. What are people gonna think? I thought I made peace with him years ago. I know he he apologized several times in several different ways. Um, but you know, he passed away without us physically coming together and reconciling. Um, the reason why I did the film was I was like, I don't understand what happened. That social conscious kid. And then the death row thing, I didn't, I just didn't, I knew intellectually certain things, but I just wanted to understand because I was confused because Tupac is one of the most misunderstood figures of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to come to terms with it. And, and on this journey, I absolutely did. Um, You say he's the most misunderstood. What do you think people misunderstand about him? They think he's a gangster. Yeah. Gangster rapper. Yeah. Yeah. They think he's a, he's not a gangster. Uh, Now he's embodied that as an alter ego at times, um, but that's not all he is. Uh, he is also um, something you rarely see in modern culture. He's a young man, particularly in, in black man, who was available to whatever emotion he's in. He was very sensitive. Like very, he was sensitive. very sensitive. Highly, yes. highly yeah. sensitive. And if he was, if he was gonna love on you, he's gonna love hard, so hard that you'd be like, I don't know what this kind of love is. If he was angry with you, it, it was violent anger. You know, if he was gonna have an intellectual conversation with you. He's going to the to the to the outer space with it where you're like, what is this? You know, if he felt joyful, you never felt that kind of joy in your life. Like there's just it was all extremes and he was available to it. Most men are not available to their emotions. Uh just period. And that's what made him special, you know? That's Alan Hughes. His new docuseries about Tupac and Afeni Shakur is called Dear Mama. Thank you so much for joining us and, and talking about this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Aisha. I really appreciate it as well. Check out this story. Now, we was once two brothers of the same kind, quick to approach a ghetto cutie with the same line. You was just a little smaller, but you still You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. We are just a day away from the 127th running of the Boston Marathon. Yesterday, Remembrances and Community Service Projects marked the 10th anniversary of the marathon bombings that killed three people and wounded hundreds of people. 
WBUR's Amanda Beeland was in the Back Bay, where people were remembering the lives lost and also celebrating the oldest annual marathon in the world. At 2.49 p.m., the exact time 10 years ago, when the first of two bombs exploded near the finish line. The Old South Church bells tolled as thousands of people, standing shoulder to shoulder on Boylston Street, paused. This weekend is evoking emotions of that horrific day a decade ago. And not just for the people who were directly impacted, or those of us who live here. Becky Gremmins from St. Paul, Minnesota, and her family paused in front of one of the memorials. It definitely is hard, just knowing that somebody did that to people that were out having a good time and enjoying the day and celebrating people. Becky and her two sons had just run the Boston Athletic Association's 5K and were in town to support her husband and their dad as he prepares to run his first Boston Marathon. Down the street from the memorials in Copley Square, runners were picking up their bibs and a nearby beer tent was packed with people. Others were laughing and playing games like cornhole. This will be Yuki Chorney's 20th Boston Marathon. In 2013, she had just finished the race and was taking a shower at her hotel when she heard the bombs explode. We don't ever want to forget what happened, but I think we have to, to look forward and, and make sure that at, to bring some happiness and joy and love back into uh, everybody that's out there. And so my, my goal on Monday is to kind of spread a little bit of happiness to everybody. For the seventh time, Joy Donahue of Hopkinton is running for charity. And the marathon to me is a symbol of worldwide humanity. And everyone like you, like these policemen, the runners, we're all part of a team, a worldwide team. And this is Boston One. And I get, surprisingly, I didn't think I would be this emotional when I saw this, but I'm proud of everyone here. City and race organizers asked people to perform acts of kindness to honor the lives lost and those injured and to help the city move forward. At one of the memorials, Berkeley College of Music student Daniela Gomez and her classmate used their talents. It's really uh, an honor to be able to accompany music um, into this uh, memorial, so that's why it was important for us to commemorate them. A new finish line was unveiled, with the design meant to symbolize a city that has been hurt, and at the same time, a city that has grown stronger together. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall School in Waltham, Mass. For nearly 200 years, day and boarding students have achieved their best at CHCH. And next year, they will be opening doors and welcoming students to the new Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall Middle School. Learn more at their open house on April 23rd, chch.org slash open house. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com careers. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Many local Ukrainians will gather to worship this morning for the second Orthodox Easter since the Russian invasion in their country. The Christ the King Ukrainian Catholic Church in Jamaica Plain has been the focus of support and fundraising for Ukraine. Tomorrow marks Yom HaShoah, or Holocaust Remembrance Day. This afternoon in Boston, the Jewish Community Relations Council holds an event featuring Holocaust survivor Jack Trompeter of Cambridge. The council's Erica Daniel Strader says it's important to share such stories as anti-Semitism rises in New England. It's also very important in this moment to make sure the younger generation is learning and hearing. And so this this particular year, we've really focused on allyship and passing on stories to the younger generation. The event takes place at Faneuil Hall today at 2. It is 50 degrees in Boston, some fog around today, patchy drizzle, scattered showers, also a slight chance of full-fledged rain and highs today in the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. In David Grant's new novel, The Year is 1740, a British naval warship sets sail. And this ship is set on some secret mission to capture a Spanish galleon filled with treasure, which was known as the prize of all the oceans. That was the plan anyway. A typhoon, a shipwreck, a mutiny, and then a reckoning. Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with services to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. If this is true, I cannot fathom how she's doing shows amidst all this. Entertainment Tonight reports Taylor Swift and her boyfriend, actor Joe Alwyn, have broken up. My therapist will be hearing about this on Monday. Swift's fans aren't holding back. Please, how am I supposed to listen to Lover, Sweet Nothings, etc. after this? These are just some comments taken from Reddit. All too unwell. And dramatized by our Weekend Edition staff. Odds are these commenters don't know Taylor Swift, and yet they seem to feel personally affected. Psychologists call that a parasocial relationship, a one-sided connection we form with people and characters we will never meet. Kate Curtin is a professor at Cal State Los Angeles who has studied parasocial relationships. She joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. What does a parasocial relationship, especially like with a musician, with a singer, rapper, look like? Like what's the line between a parasocial relationship and just being a fan? The imagery that I get in my head is a fan is like those millions of people that would follow the Beatles around. And when the Beatles would look at them, they would faint outside of their hotel room. Whereas like a parasocial relationship, one of the questions that we ask is like, do you want to invite this person to your birthday party? You know, like I want to hang out with you. I don't just want to 
see you from afar. I'm not going to break down police barriers to be in your presence. But I think if we hung out, we would have a lot in common. Okay. In a paper you've published, you mentioned this 96-hour live stream that Katy Perry did, which included a therapy session. Like, is that sort of the content that makes people feel more connected to a celebrity? Exactly. And full disclosure, it was Katy Perry that brought me to this line of, of research. Parasocial relationships are built in the same ways that our friendships, our interpersonal relationships are built. So there are these three layers of attraction. So the first one is social attraction. The consumer wants to be friends with the media persona. Then there's a physical attraction. It could be because we are both women or because we both have brown hair. And then finally is task attraction, the extent to which we believe they are capable and talented and credible. That's very interesting to like break it down like that. Um, these people like they're not really relatable to us like they're they're rich and they're famous what is this feeling like we can relate to them I think some of it is also aspirational you know I was asking mm. myself that exact same question with Katy Perry our lives at the time really couldn't have been more different but her message meant something to me. You know, how we were processing politics at the time meant something to me. And so I was able to attach myself to different parts of her personality. And then honestly, you know, ignore the rest of it or say like, oh, that's just her, just like the way we do with our friends. Well, it's kind of like you can try to find vague things of like relatability, right? Like with Beyonce, I can look at her. We've kind of grown up together yeah. in a way. She's from the South. She has three kids. I have three kids. You know, now she's singing about being a wife and a mother. And your relationship with Beyonce is empowering. Taylor Swift is kind of an interesting case because a few years ago, she pulled back from social media and from interviews and but she still also has this confessional like songwriting style there'll be happiness after you but there was happiness because of you i think she's actually phenomenal in doing everything basically textbook and in the paper we talk about how there's this less is more mentality with taylor swift she really only lets the fans in in her music. Haunted by the look in my eyes, I would have loved you for a lifetime. Leave it all behind, and there is happiness. That we can then listen to over and over and over again and make our own connections. And then the cycle continues, and our relationship just gets stronger and stronger because we feel that she is so authentic. And the thing, though, now is that with some of those confessional songs that Taylor Swift wrote, um, she wrote them about a relationship that has now ended. Um, mm -hmm. And that seems to be making fans sad. I love it so much. I love that fans are grieving with her. You know, we all had love songs until the relationship ended. And now those love songs are breakup songs. 
with a lot of certainly young people, Taylor Swift is teaching them how to think about love. And it's feeling very raw for people. And I love that they are communicating about that in a very real way because these relationships are real. They fill the need that we have for interpersonal connection. That's Professor Kate Curtin of Cal State LA. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. We've all been there walking around outside needing to throw something away, but you can't find a trash can. Well, in New York recently, the trash cans could find you. They could even roll towards you. <laughs> kind of like a certain droid from a galaxy far, far away. It was a project of researchers from Cornell University. They powered two plastic trash cans using recycled hoverboards and attached 360 cameras on them. Then they released them in Astor Place in Manhattan. It was a Wizard of Oz deployment method, which lets people interact with something thinking it's a computer, but it's actually controlled by an unseen human. The researchers' videos show the bins darting around between people sitting at tables or just walking by. People coax the bins toward them to throw their trash away. Others helped them when the bins got stuck. And some kicked the bins away. It was just too creepy for them. Still, some thought those robotic trash cans were a kind of cute way to keep at least one part of New York City squeaky clean. Where might you find Jesus on a Saturday night? At the Gay Bar, according to the pop band Cub Sport. Jesus at the Gay Bar is the title of the Australian group's fifth album. Their synth-pop sound offers a dreamy look into a young gay man's pilgrimage to love and acceptance. One reviewer wrote, it feels like unapologetically swapping past feelings of shame towards celebration and pure euphoria. On that note, lead singer Tim Nelson joins us now from Brisbane, Australia. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with that title, Jesus at the Gay Bar. This comes from a poem, right? Yeah, it was inspired by a poem by a guy called Jay Holm. And it basically depicts Jesus at a gay bar. A boy comes up to him asking to be healed of his gayness. And Jesus tells him, my child, there's nothing in this heart of yours that ever needs to be healed. Mm. For me growing up in a pretty religious world, being told that who I was and my sexuality was something that I should be ashamed of and that I did need to be healed from, reading this poem like really impacted me. Is it that idea of accepting who you are and feeling like that is divine? Yeah, that's absolutely it. And it's been quite a journey to get to this point of going from a place of feeling ashamed of who I was to like accepting my queerness. So gone, I'm not coming back. That hate that I dyed my head black. When I got a girlfriend. Just to throw them off track. On your song, Keep Me Safe, you sing about having to hide yourself in that song. Who were you hiding from? I think it was just kind of the homophobia that I grew up in was very much internalized. And when we started the band, um, I wasn't out yet. Sam's um, one of my bandmates. We had 
dated in secret for a year when we were 17 and then spent the eight years after that kind of trying to deny the fact that we were in love. Finally, after all of those years, we had the conversation and came out. And uh, then the year after that, we got engaged. And the year after that, we got married. I'm like really glad that I'm gay now, which I never thought I would be. Did you feel like, you know, your, your now husband, Sam, that he kept you safe? Oh, definitely. He was the first person that I felt like I could show my whole self to. We were still best friends through all of those years and spent basically every day together. He kind of allowed me to take my time and figure myself out. Mm. You know, this album is such a, a blend of, of different sounds and different genres. Uh, I think we have a clip of songs about it. So I write songs about it. I write songs about it. Synth pop, techno, even disco influences. I write songs about did you approach crafting the sound of the album? Because this is like music you can dance to, you know, you can hit the club to. Like it's, it, it is a very vibrant sound. I knew that I wanted this album to feel fun and energetic and uplifting, to have that same heart and depth that I feel has like been in everything that I'd written up until that point. And so it was about finding that special place between the two where it was like heart-centered, but at the same time, it was something that you can like dance to, like play at the club. And a lot of it is just instinctual. And it's like the sounds that I connect with coming together with the lyrical content that is kind of like my truth that I, I need to get out. <laughs> Toward the end of the album, you sound so vulnerable in a song called Beg You. What are you conveying with this song? I wrote this one during the pandemic and during lockdowns, and I think I was feeling a little disconnected from myself. We hadn't been able to play shows, and I hadn't been able to have that feeling of connection with fans and to suddenly have those things taken away, I, I felt pretty lost. I think I felt like kind of needy and like I, I really just like needed some love. Thing about being an artist and like connecting with people on the stage which is like a different connection than a one-on-one -on -one connection but it's also something deep that it seems like artists really need and crave like to have that connection with this larger audience with the people that listen to your music yeah big time and i feel like there are also these moments of like one-on-one -on -one connection in the show as well 
In 2018, I saw Solange play at the Opera House in Sydney. She got down onto the edge of the stage and I was in the front row. She sang like a whole verse, just like looking into my eyes and it like changed my life. Literally like the whole room felt like it turned into this vortex and it was just like me and Solange in this moment. And I think that was like one of the most impactful live music moments that I'd ever experienced. I was like, well, I'm not gonna be afraid to like make eye contact with someone in the audience and kind of like sing to them, like I'm gonna do it. And I kind of started doing that at shows when I felt like the right person in the audience that maybe needed like a certain part of a song sung to them or something. Mm. These moments, with like a greater audience, but also like a one-on-one moment like that are so special. That's like another part of the live show experience that I have missed a lot and that I'm so excited to get back into. I know that you've been down, 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 down. feels like they don't believe in you. On the shelf for now, but I can see the man. I want to talk to you about the last song on the album, Magic in You. Why in the album with this song? I think I wanted the end of the album to feel almost like a warm hug or something. There were points during the creation of the album where I did kind of lose belief in myself. And I think for this song, it was like a message that I needed for myself and I wanted to share that with other people and for the end of this album to be like this uplifting send-off of like even if you don't feel good right now like there is magic in you it was the perfect way to end the album you know they often say like that cliche it's like if you preach a message to somebody first you got to preach it to yourself so it's like you had to get that message to yourself first before you could get it to the world. You're, you're always the first audience. Love that. That's Tim Nelson, the lead singer of the band Cup Sport. Their new album is called Jesus at the Gay Bar. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. Join us this coming Saturday, April 22nd at City Space for a Climate Horror.
Hope concert, an immersive celebration of the planet. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series, presenting the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra with Wynton Marsalis, a big band experience at Symphony Hall, April 21st. CelebritySeries.org and Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm Melissa Nadworny. As a reporter, I know every big global story is made up of countless small personal ones. I followed two kindergartners, best friends, separated by Russia's war on Ukraine. She likes to play soccer. Danielle loves her because she's not so girlish. The story behind that story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Maisha Roscoe, good morning. The legal battle over restrictions for a key abortion drug has reached the Supreme Court. How is the White House responding? And Hollywood writers are voting on whether to allow their union to authorize a strike. They say they're getting underpaid when it comes to streaming. My show on streaming, if I got a residual check for that, I'm not even kidding, it might be $5. Plus, musician Questlove has teamed up with author S.A. Cosby for a new sci-fi novel for middle schoolers. And there's always the puzzle. It's Sunday, April 16th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Authorities in Alabama are confirming four fatalities from last night's shooting in Dadeville. And hospital spokeswoman Heidi Smith says her small-town community hospital treated 15 gunshot patients. It was pretty organized, but it was organized chaos. As I said, the hospital is relatively small. Um, lots of difficulty parking and those kind of things, but everybody has been treated and either transferred or released at this point. Smith says 17 ambulances responded to the scene of the shooting at a dance hall where she says people were celebrating a teenager's birthday party. In Kentucky, Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg is calling it an unspeakable tragedy, unspeakable week of tragedy. Two people are dead, four others wounded in another mass shooting in the city. Nearly a week ago, a gunman killed five employees at a uh, downtown Louisville bank. In western Minnesota, three law enforcement officers have been shot. The Pope County Sheriff's Office says they were responding to a domestic call last night. Their conditions are unclear. At least 56 people now reported dead in Sudan in fighting that began yesterday between a paramilitary force and the country's military. Hundreds more have been injured. The fighting now in its second day, as Michael Koloki reports. Early on Sunday, Sudan's armed forces launched airstrikes on a base operated by the Rapid Support Force, or RSF, near the capital Khartoum. 
The sounds of heavy artillery and gunfire have also been reported in a number of cities in the country. The RSF is a paramilitary force primarily comprised of militias that fought in a war in the country's Darfur region. Several days ago, the signing of a deal to name a civilian government in Sudan was postponed after negotiators failed to reach an agreement regarding the integration of the RSF into the regular military. Sudan's army has been trying to establish its authority over armed groups in the country, while the RSF has been keen to maintain its independence. For NPR News, I am Michael Kalou. In Nairobi. More than a dozen people have been killed by Russian missile attacks in eastern and southern Ukraine over this Orthodox Easter holiday. NPR's Joanna Kisses is in Kiev. She reports a private Russian mercenary army continues to advance on a ravaged city in the east. Russia's defense ministry says that the Wagner Group, a private army bankrolled by a Russian oligarch, has captured two more areas in the city of Bakhmut. Serhii Cherovatki, a spokesman for Ukraine's Eastern Military Command, told reporters that the battles were, quote, unprecedented and bloody, but that Ukraine was hanging on. In Slovyansk, not far from Bakhmut, at least 11 people were killed after Russian missiles hit residential buildings on Friday. A Russian artillery strike on Saturday also killed a mother and daughter in the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson. Russia blames the deaths of four people in an occupied town on Ukrainian shelling. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kiev. And from Washington, this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Tens of thousands of people from around the world are gearing up to take part in the Boston Marathon tomorrow. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says the conditions should be comfortable for the competitors. No historic weather expected for tomorrow. In fact, temperatures should be perfect for runners, starting in the upper 40s, then rising into the low to mid 50s. Skies will be overcast, but there will be scattered showers around. So my big concern, of course, is that will take away body heat from marathoners and make the roads a little bit slick where it's wet. Noise suggests spectators carry an umbrella tomorrow and dress for cooler temperatures with winds up to about 15 miles an hour. Local and state officials are on the scene after a train carrying hazardous materials derailed and caught fire in Rockwood, Maine yesterday. The village is about two hours northwest of Bangor. Three railroad employees were hospitalized with non-life-threatening injuries. The Maine Department of Agriculture, Conservation and Forestry said the derailed cars were carrying lumber and electrical wiring. Additional cars carrying hazardous materials did not derail. The agency says there is no threat to public health or safety, but the agency has advised people to stay clear of the area. Today, Rhode Islanders are remembering a political leader. State Senate Majority Whip Mary Ellen Goodwin's death from cancer was confirmed yesterday by the State General Assembly. She was 58 years old. Goodwin had been in the Senate since 1986 and was its second longest-serving member. She championed causes including paid sick leave and same-sex marriage. This year marks the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. Today, several organizations will gather at noon to place markers at the grave sites of two Boston Tea Party participants. They're buried at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge. It is 50 degrees in Boston, showers around today, and highs reaching the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Abortion rights supporters rallied yesterday across the country and here in Washington in front of the Supreme Court. Are we going to back down? No. Are we going to be quiet? No. Are we going to back down ever? No. There we go. The clock is ticking down on a temporary stay of a lower court ruling that would restrict access to the abortion drug Mifepristone. The stay was issued by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito at the request of the Justice Department. It only lasts through this Wednesday. Joining me to discuss this and other political stories this week is NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Hi, Asma. Hi, good to be with you. Okay, so this stay is buying time, but for what exactly? Well, I should be clear, it's a purely administrative move. So, uh, you know, folks shouldn't interpret it as a sign of how the Supreme Court might actually decide this case. Uh, A bit of backstory, I think, is worthwhile to just explain the context here. So earlier this month, a federal judge in Texas suspended the FDA's approval of the drug. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals stepped in. It preserved some access, but also put new limitations. And then on Friday, the Justice Department issued a formal request to block the limits. And the the administration's argument here is that what the court did is not just unprecedented, but it could unleash regulatory chaos. Uh, It pointed out that the drug is not just for abortion, but it's also used in many cases to treat miscarriages. This stay uh, that the Supreme Court issued really gives the other side now a chance to respond to the government's appeal. So that's the legal fallout, but there seems to be some political fallout too, of course. So over this uncertainty around abortion. Mm -hmm, That's right. I mean, if you look at public opinion, it is becoming, I think, increasingly clear that the courts are not in sync with where people are on this issue. You know, the Pew Research Center has polling out that shows by more than a two to one margin, Americans say medication abortion ought to be legal in their state. And I will say, you know, what to me was very interesting is when the court decision out of Texas came down, when that judge's decision came down, you did not see a slew of Republicans, specifically those running for president in 2024, you know, come coming in to champion this decision. But you did immediately see Democrats condemning it. Um, They feel they have the upper hand politically. I will uh, sort of assume that they were likely to run on this issue, as we saw them do in the midterms. And really, the message we're hearing from Democrats is that Republicans are preparing for a national ban on abortion. So what's the president been saying about all of this? Well, Biden himself, you know, I will say broadly has not been terribly vocal on abortion, but he has strongly criticized this decision. It is actually the vice president, Kamala Harris, though, who's taken the lead within this administration on promoting reproductive rights. And this is, I think, in many ways, a natural issue for her in a way that perhaps it is not for for President Biden. Just yesterday, she spoke to hundreds of people who had been marching through downtown L.A. to voice their support for abortion rights. She warned of so-called extremist leaders around the country and said that this is a really critical point in our nation's history that is going to require people to stand up and fight. When you attack the rights of women in America, you are attacking America. 
You know, she's going to keep using the power of the bully pulpit on abortion. Um, and I think this is interesting because there have been questions about the stature of her role on uh, this ticket leading up to the re-election bid. But this is an issue that she's really taken a lead on. She's going to be traveling to Reno, Nevada on Tuesday to discuss the issue. And it's really become central to her job. The Senate returns to Washington this week, but at least one Democratic lawmaker will not be here due to ongoing health problems, Diane Feinstein of California. She's already planning to retire in 2024, but some of her colleagues are saying she needs to step down now. Here's what Congressman Ro Khanna told NPR just last week. I have not spoken to Senator Feinstein for four years. She doesn't show up to any of the California lunches. She doesn't engage. I mean, it's sort of an open secret in, in Washington. All I said is what people know privately, that California has basically had an absentee senator. Asma, what do you make of this? Uh, I will say it really comes down to the Judiciary Committee. She has a role on that committee. Democrats cannot get any of Biden's picks through and confirmed without her vote. She has offered to temporarily step down from that committee, but it's not clear that, you know, Republicans are going to agree with that move. And that does put the administration in a tight spot. Judges is something they can do through the Senate. They don't need Republican control in the House to do that. That's NPR White House correspondent Asma Halit. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Hollywood writers will cast their last votes tomorrow, authorizing their union to strike if it doesn't reach an agreement with studios. The Writers Guild of America is demanding better pay and residuals from features in theaters and streaming platforms. Adam Conover is the host of Adam Ruins Everything on True TV and a member of the WGA's negotiating committee. Sean Collins-Smith is a Guild member and has written for the popular NBC show Chicago PD. They both join me now. Hello to you both. Hello there. Thanks so much for having us. Hey, great to be here. So, you know, what is the writer's position at this moment and what what do you need? What are you asking for? Well, currently what we're doing right now is we're taking a strike authorization vote and uh, we're hoping that our members support that in record numbers. Uh, and the reason we're doing that is because we've faced you know, an unprecedented assault by the companies reducing our wages, our compensation, our residuals, and our working conditions over the last 10 years. In these negotiations, we're looking to plug those holes, you know, establish protections that will make sure that writers who work on shows that have budgets in the tens of millions of dollars or movies that have budgets in the hundreds of millions of dollars that are, you know, huge money makers for these studios. We want to make sure those writers are able to still afford to live and work in Los Angeles or New York or whatever city they live in. We're we're fighting for basic economic survival. Uh, so, so tell me about how streaming has changed the landscape for Hollywood writers and how that connects to the demands of the Guild, because it's very different when it was just network and cable TV, right? That's true, but I, I think that it's possible to oversell how big the streaming transition has been because it's not just a technological change. The companies have used the transition to streaming as an excuse to find new ways to pay writers less money. It doesn't matter that it's getting you're getting it on your cable box versus your Apple TV. What matters is the companies have figured out, ah, there's a loophole in the contract. We don't need to pay those writers the minimum. And that's the kind of thing we're looking to plug. So, so Sean, you've written for streaming shows and broadcasts. Can you talk about how they're different? One of the biggest differences between, for instance, like I wrote on an hour-long streaming show 
uh, for Peacock, and now I write for an hour-long uh, procedural for NBC. So that's the difference between broadcast and streaming. And my experiences in the room for both were pretty similar. I mean, great showrunners, great writers, you know, great from top to bottom. But the pay could not be more diametrically opposite. I mean, my show on streaming, if I got a residual check for that, I'm not even kidding. It might be $5, $50, $100 if that. My first residual for my episode that airs on NBC is going to be closer to $25,000. You know, if, if someone outside of Hollywood hears that number, they're like, that's a lot of money. There's no way you should expect that in any other industry. But the thing in the writing industry is that you might go one, two, three years without a job. And so for a lot of these writers over the last few decades, residuals were how they made ends meet until they could get into the next room. So, so Sean, one, one other thing that has been happening a lot is that things will get made for streaming or what have you, and then they never see the light of day. Um, I understand that you worked on a, a streaming show and that happened. So what does that mean for you as far as payment if the show that you make or the movie that you make gets shelved? I mean, well, I mean, at that point, you're for me anyway, it didn't reduce that much pay because I got on my show as a staff writer and staff writers don't get script fees. And that's a whole nother issue that I won't launch into. But for other writers, if they're in a room for 10, 15 weeks and the show doesn't go to air, maybe that's the difference for some kind of residual or maybe a, a script fee that they might not get. Look, writers have always dealt with shows being canceled. The issue is we need ways in our contract that will guarantee that when writers are spending, you know, six months just to get a job and that's the only job they get in that year, that that job pays for their year's mortgage or rent or, or food supply. If a strike happens, there was one that happened in, in 2007 that lasted 100 days. How might a strike now be similar or different from that one? You know, that's a very good question. One way is that in 2007, uh, writers picketed the studio entrances, right? Because writers were used to going to work in physical locations. Now a lot of television writing is done over Zoom. And so, you know, we're talking about doing virtual picket lines over Zoom. One of the other differences is that, you know, there are a few less shows that uh, are on every single night that, that use writing services every single day. There's a couple less late night shows than there were back in 2007, but there's still enough that, that a strike is going to have a big impact. You know, Sean, now with what you've experienced and starting to write for TV and everything that we've talked about today, are you optimistic about the future of this industry? You know, weirdly enough, I am. And I think the reason that I'm optimistic is because I've seen the power of the guild to organize and to get people together to vote yes on something. <laughs> I mean, it's, and as simple as that sounds, you know, my first two full-time jobs were both journalism jobs and we did not have unions. My next two jobs that have been full-time, one was teaching and now I'm writing, I did have a union. And I have seen firsthand with both of these jobs how much better my environment has been and how much easier it is to ask for something important and then get it. Sean Collins-Smith is a writer for Chicago PD and a member of the Writers Guild of America. Adam Conover, who is the host of Adam Ruins Everything on True TV and a member of the Guild's negotiating committee. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening.
listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018. And coming up in about 15 minutes, our conversation with our Boston Marathon correspondent, Alex Ashlock, about events yesterday and about some of the top competition in what's shaping up as a very exciting race tomorrow. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Tomorrow morning here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear that the newest part of marathon training is an audio book. And wherever you are, you can listen with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download it or update it in your app store now. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. Authorities in Alabama are confirming uh, confirming four fatalities from last night's shooting in the small town of Dadeville. The community hospital there says it treated 15 gunshot patients. There's been another mass shooting in Louisville, the second there in a week. Police are looking for a suspect who fired a gun into a crowd of hundreds at the city's Chickasaw Park last night. Police say two people are dead and four others wounded. And thousands of people turned out this weekend for abortion rights rallies. The rallies around the country come as the Supreme Court reviews lower court rulings on the common abortion drug mifepristone. A stay on a Texas judge's ruling expires this Wednesday. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Sudan is facing another day of violence as the bitter power struggle between the two main factions of the ruling military regime spirals out of control. Dozens have been killed. Residents in the capital Khartoum, including the U.S. ambassador and his staff, are spending another tense day sheltering in place. Gunfire and explosions continue to be heard across the city, and fighter jets frequently rip through the sky above. Zainab Mohammed Sali is a journalist in the capital and joins us now with the latest. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So like many people in the city, you are also sheltering in place. Uh, but can you give us an idea of, of what is happening on the streets outside? We woke up on heavy gunfire in different parts of the capital of Khartoum. I saw smoke rising over Umduman, which is the western part of the city. The army, basically, they claim that they are in control of the military bases in the north. And the RSF is claiming other things that they are in control. There is basically shortage in food in some parts of the city, 
people went to buy food and they had to queue for long to get just bread and some stuff for eating. But now the Sudanese military and these the rapid support forces, paramilitary group, the RSF, they are battling each other. And you said that they're both claiming to be in control, but we don't really know, right? Yeah, they are now battling each other because it's a, a pure power struggle between them because each of them wants to get control of the whole country. The RSF now became a huge thing, really a big, a big army by themselves. What have you been hearing from people you've been talking to overnight? I was speaking with a member at the Sovereign Council. They were trying to do kind of mediation between two of them. They were telling me they are now, at this moment, located between the military HQ and the presidential palace. And I was talking to them and hearing the heavy guns around them. They said people were fighting on the streets outside of their houses. And the soldiers were wounded and they are not able to take them to the hospital as well. These people are in the government and in very high position, let alone the ordinary people when they get injured, wounded. I don't know how they get access to the hospitals or any kind of treatment. Do you have any idea of how many casualties there are in this current unrest? Yeah, according to the Sudan Doctor Committee, they said about 56 people were killed, civilians were killed in Khartoum and in Al-Ubayyid in northern Kurdistan state. And they said hundreds of other have been injured. And that is just, they're talking about civilians. We don't know about the soldiers. So, I mean, only four years ago, the country was celebrating the overthrow of President Omar al-Bashir. And, you know, there was hopes of a transition to a democratic civilian-led government. So how did we get to this point? Yeah, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's a power struggle between the two generals, basically, even though they, together, they made the coup against al-Bashir when millions of people went out on the streets protesting Bashir's regime in 2019. So they mastered the coup against him and they put him in jail. And then they had a kind of power sharing deal with the civilians. And now they are just fighting over who should be only leading the country solely. That's Zainab Mohamed Sali. She is a journalist in the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thousands of Ukrainian children have been taken to Russia or Russian-occupied territories since the beginning of the war. Many parents sent their kids voluntarily to get them out of war zones. Kyiv now accuses Russia of using a system of summer camps and foster homes to indoctrinate and steal Ukrainian children. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley recently met a group of Ukrainians headed to Russia to get their children after months of separation. The group of around 25 mothers boards a bus in Kyiv, the start of a days-long journey through several countries to reach Russia. We're nervous but excited to hug our children again, says 46-year-old Irina Hirchenko from the Kharkiv region. Her two daughters went to a three-week camp in Russia seven months ago. 
Kurichenko explains how her 11 and 12-year-old ended up in Russia. Early in the war, her town, close to the Russian border, was occupied by Russian troops. There was an advertisement at the town education department for a chance to send your child to the seaside. These camps are well known from Soviet days. Another group had gone and returned with no problems, so we decided to send the girls. A single mother, Herchenko says she and her daughters did everything together. She tears up as she shows a video they made for her. Anastasia and Ksenia didn't come home as planned in September because Ukraine took their town back in the Kharkiv counteroffensive. She was now separated from her daughters by the front line. Communications were severed for a month. Hrachenko says her daughters have been treated well, but the response of a Russian official made her very nervous. He said, why are you in such a hurry? We know that Vovchansk has no gas or water. Why do you want to return the kids to such conditions? And I said, because it's been seven months and I haven't seen my children, I want them back. Ukrainian officials and human rights organizations allege Russia is using a system of coercion and force to take Ukrainian children and turn them into loyal Russian citizens. Mikola Kuleba is CEO of Save Ukraine, the charity organizing and funding these mothers' trip. He says Russia tells the world it's rescuing children from combat zones and Nazis. But it is a lie. These children are hostages. It is not evacuation. It is not salvation for these children. When you indoctrinate them, when you russify them, it is a war crime. The International Criminal Court agrees it has issued arrest warrants for President Vladimir Putin and another top official for the unlawful transfer and deportation of children. The Kiev Hotel, where the charity operates, buzzes with activity. Mothers who've already made the trip are allowed to recover here with their kids. 44-year-old Luda is from Kherson. Her town was also occupied in the first days of the war and was only freed in November. She sent her 16-year-old daughter Nastya to a seaside holiday camp in annexed Crimea in September. But when Ukraine retook the city two months later, Nastya couldn't come home. Luda says a camp official told her, if you want your daughter, come get her. She says she and Nastya began to panic. She told me, Mom, take me back soon, because they are going to resettle us over the Ural Mountains, and no one is going to return us. Luda and Nastya do not want to use their last name because Kherson is still an active battle zone. Nastya says there were stories of kids being mistreated, but she was treated fine. Still, she ached to come home. I was in a foreign city, a foreign country. I didn't know where I was. I was lost and scared, and I missed my mom. Hello, Eighteen-year-old Lisa has just returned from picking up her 14-year-old brother Kostya in Russia. Their mother died years ago and their father is sick. 
They don't want to share the family's last name either for similar reasons. She says she and her four sisters sent Kostya to a holiday camp in Russia while their town in the Kherson region was both occupied by Russian soldiers and shelled by Ukraine. The family briefly lost touch with Kostya but found him living with a Russian foster family. Kostya says he was treated well, but the family tried to persuade him to stay in Russia. They said when I'm 18, I'll get 30,000 rubles a month. You know, the good life. And if I return to Ukraine, I won't get anything. Lisa says it took her two days to convince her little brother to come back home with her. They offered him a flat and a salary, she says. He's only 14. Of course that impressed him. Lisa says despite that, in some way, she's grateful to the family for taking her brother in. If he'd been put in a Russian orphanage, she says, we may never have found him. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Kyiv. In South Texas, the commercial space flight company SpaceX is preparing to test a huge stainless steel rocket. A machine like this could one day carry humans to the moon, Mars, and beyond. But first, it has to fly. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports. This enormous rocket is called Starship. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk was in Texas last year to show it off. Thank you very much. For your sport. The giant, gleaming rocket stood on the pad behind him. When mounted on its super heavy booster, it's nearly 400 feet tall. Super heavy is the largest flying object of any kind, or will be. <laughs> um. <laughs> Larger than even the Saturn V rockets that took astronauts to the moon over half a century ago. They were built by NASA at the height of the Cold War at enormous cost to the U.S. government. SpaceX is a private company which is already making money with smaller rockets. That raises a big question. Why, why are we doing this? <laughs> and, of course, Elon Musk being Elon Musk, he's got a big answer. Eventually, the sun will expand and destroy all life. So for those who really care about not just the humans, but all the life on Earth, it is very important, essential, that over the long term that we become a multi-planet species and ultimately even go beyond the solar system and bring life with us. Actually, there's a much more down-to-earth reason that SpaceX wants this mega rocket to work. I'll get to that in a second. But first, how does it work? Paolo Lozano is director of the Space Propulsion Laboratory at MIT. It's a very complex machine. It has so many different components, and uh, many of those components are very critical, of course. The most important component? Giant engines called Raptors. Starship uses six to fly. They're fueled by methane and oxygen. Three, two, one. And in early flight tests like this one in March of 2021, they can cause problems. All went well at liftoff, but when one of the engines restarted to land... It exploded. Starship 11 is not coming back. Don't wait for the landing. That test was only for the spacefaring part of the rocket. The Super Heavy Booster uses 33 Raptor engines. Lozano says it's a great system for producing a lot of thrust, but... Having that large number of rocket engines firing simultaneously, it's actually quite hard. I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. The booster has only been tested on the ground so far. 
Okay, so now let's get back to why SpaceX is doing this. Because aside from saving life on Earth from the eventual death of the sun, there are some important business reasons it wants this rocket to work. The company's main prospects for revenue growth in the near term come from its satellite-based internet service known as Starlink. There's been strong interest from users, but the Starlink system is currently limited by how many subscribers it can support. Tim Ferrer is president of TMF Associates, a telecom consulting firm. In order to continue to grow their subscriber base, they need more capacity, and that's going to require more and bigger satellites. We're talking potentially thousands of additional satellites. Right now, SpaceX's smaller rocket can only launch a few dozen at a time. Starship can launch many more and larger, heavier satellites the company can use to increase profitability. If they can get Starship going, that will clearly help a lot. NASA is also paying SpaceX to develop a version of Starship to visit the moon, and Musk wants to send people to Mars, though both those projects are years away. For now, investors seem happy to let SpaceX try out its massive, potentially interplanetary rocket, but Ferrer says if the launch fails and Starship falls further behind schedule, it could affect all of SpaceX's business. If things change and people lose confidence and people lose that belief, then things are going to look very different. It's a big gamble that could pay off, but SpaceX understands it's risky. When the company recently posted its timeline for the flight, instead of calling the moment of launch liftoff, it wrote simply, excitement guaranteed. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Tomorrow is Marathon Monday. The 127th edition of the Classic Foot Race will be the focus of attention. But on Saturday, the city marked the 10th anniversary of the bombings at the finish line. The bells of Old South Church rang out at the exact time of the explosions 10 years ago. Our marathon correspondent, Alex Ashlock, was there and joins me now to talk about the event and about tomorrow's race. Alex, good morning. Good morning, Sharon. Great to be with you. Could you set the scene for us on Boylston Street? What was the feeling yesterday? It was really interesting, Sharon. On Saturday before the marathon, I'm sure you've been downtown. It's very exciting to be there. Lots of runners who are running the marathon come to the finish line, get their picture taken, soak up the atmosphere ahead of the Monday race. So that was happening. At the same time, other people were just waiting quietly for the ceremony to start at 2.30 yesterday afternoon. And uh, when that did happen, there was just a hush there. And you spoke to people who are running the marathon tomorrow about the anniversary. What did you hear? Well, first of all, I was struck, I guess reminded, that the Boston Marathon and what happened here back on April 15th of 2013, it certainly wasn't just a Boston event. It resonated around the world, especially in the running community. I met a woman from Sweden. Her name was Petra Hendrickson. She followed the bombings and the aftermath from Sweden. Then she came to Boston to run in 2018. She's running again again tomorrow. She and her husband were wearing Boston Strong t-shirts. We are one Boston. I mean, it feels great to be here. Used to be calm and used to see and, and pay respect. 
You know, yesterday really just brought back all the memories of what happened in 2013. I spoke to another runner who was one of the thousands of people, Sharon, who didn't get to finish the marathon 10 years ago because of the bombings. He got stopped on Commonwealth Avenue. His name is Jack Geary. He was born in Boston, now lives in California. Tomorrow will be his 28th consecutive Mm. Boston Marathon. Wow. And he was thinking uh, yesterday of the people killed and injured. You know, to honor those people is just uh, magnificent. I think they live on with us. Every year we show up, it honors them. And although the anniversary will remain in people's minds and hearts, the focus does now shift to the race. It is time to compete. Well, not for us this time, but for 30,000 other people. Alex, what are you looking forward to on race day tomorrow? I have one name for you, Elliot Kipchoge. He's a Kenyan. He's arguably the world's greatest marathoner. Actually, in my opinion, there's not an argument. He is the best, and he's running Boston for the first time. I have prepared uh, for Boston for the last five months. I have taken my seconds, my minutes, uh, my days, my weeks, my months, and I think that's what will actually uh, push me to the finishing line. He is meticulous in his uh, preparations for marathons. He's the world record holder, the two-time Olympic marathon champion. He's clearly the man to beat. But there are plenty of other world-class men in the field, including last year's winner, another Kenyan, Evans Chibet. And the women's field? The women's field is amazing, really strong. Several athletes who have run other marathons faster than the Boston course record. There's Gatiam Gebrselasa of Ethiopia. She won the 2022 World Championship Marathon in event record time. There's also Lona Salpeter of Israel. She was second at the New York City Marathon last November. And among the Americans, fan favorite Des Linden. She won in 2018. There's also Nell Rojas. She was the top American here the last two years. What about the other categories? The wheelchair races should be really fascinating. Uh, Manuela Schar of Switzerland, she's the defending champion. She's won here four times. The men's winner from 2022, American Daniel Romanchuk, is also back. He'll be racing against another Swiss athlete, Marcel Hoog. He's won the Boston Marathon five times. I'm really looking forward to those two wheelchair races. Alex Ashlock, our marathon reporter. Thanks, Alex. You're welcome, Sharon. And Alex will be reporting from the starting line of the Boston Marathon during Morning Edition tomorrow here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gore Place and the 36th Annual Sheep Shearing Festival. Sheep shearing and herding demos, fiber artists, and more. April 22nd in Waltham. Goreplace.org. Waterstone, a new luxury independent and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington, waterstonelexington.com, and New England Conservatory's Philharmonia and Symphonic Choir at Symphony Hall on April 26th, conducted by Hugh Wolfe. Tickets at necmusic.edu. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. As a reporter, I know every big global story is made up of countless small personal ones. I followed two kindergartners, best friends, separated by Russia's war on Ukraine. She likes to play soccer. Danielle loves her because she's not so girlish. The story behind that story on the next All Things Considered from 
NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, remind us of last week's challenge, please. Yes, it came from Joseph Young of St. Cloud, Minnesota. He conducts the blog Puzzle Rhea. Name some things you might grow in a garden. Move the middle letter to the beginning. And phonetically, the result sounds like part of the human body and an article of clothing that covers it. What words are these? Well, the things you grow in a garden are eggplants. Move the L to the front, you get leg and pants. Mm, okay, so so this puzzle was really popular. We had over 1,000 correct submissions, and our winner is Ned Toll of Harvard, Massachusetts. Congratulations, Ned, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So how did you figure this one out? Uh, I ended up working backwards because I figured there were fewer things to choose from when you were talking about parts of the body and clothing. So <laughs> when I figured out that uh, pants covered legs, then, then I found eggplants. Okay. Well, that was very good. What do you do when you're not playing the puzzle? Uh, I do some bird watching and some woodworking. Okay. you do, So you watch birds. Now, you know, I don't like birds, but I'm glad you like to watch them, keep track of them so they're not getting into no trouble. That's right. I'll, I'll keep them away from you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. So, Ned, are you ready to play the puzzle? Well, I'm hoping I'm not like the dog who finally caught the car after all these years, but <laughs> we'll give it a go. Okay. You are definitely ready. Uh, take it away, Will. All right, Ned and Aisha. It's a very simple idea today. I'm going to give you some words and some familiar phrases. Rearrange the letters of each one to name a state capital. For example, if I said Meals, M-E-A-L-S, you would say Salem, as in the capital of Oregon. Here's number one, Roved, R-O-V-E-D. That would be Dover, Delaware. That's right. Poke at, P-O-K-E-A-T. Oh, Topeka. Topeka, Kansas is right. Anti-U.S., that's A-N-T-I-U-S. Let's see. Let's see, Austin. Austin, Texas, is it? Up last, U-P-L-A-S-T. Oh, St. Paul. St. Paul, you got it. Leg hair, L-E-G-H-A-I-R. All right. Like everyone says, it's a lot harder when you're on air. <laughs> you're doing great. You're doing great. Let me think. Oh, it must be Raleigh. Raleigh, North Carolina. Good. In slang. That's I-N-S-L-A-N-G. All right. Um... Oh, Lansing. 
Oh. Lansing is it. iPhone X. That's I-P-H-O-N-E-X. Phoenix. Oh. Phoenix, Arizona is right. Missed one. That's M-I-S-S-E-D-O-N-E. Uh, let's see. Oh, Des Moines. Des Moines, you got it. Try this one. Ticket Roll. That's T-I-C-K-E-T-R-O-L-L. Oh, Little Rock. Little Rock. Good one. And here's your last one. Actor's Name. A-C-T-O-R-S-N-A-M-E. And it's the capital of a state that has a lot of actors. Oh, Sacramento. Sacramento, California. Good job. <laughs> oh, I'm not. Not only am I not good with geography, like like descrambling words like that or unscrambling words, is not my forte. But you did a great job, Ned. How do you feel? Thank you. This is a lifetime ambition. I'm going to have to start wearing a jacket so I can use the lapel pin. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. No, you did a great job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Ned, what member station do you listen to? Uh, we're members of WBUR and WDBH. And when we're in Maine, well, we're members of WMEA in Portland. Oh, that is awesome. That's Ned Toll of Harvard, Massachusetts. Thanks so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you. All right, Will. So what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Jan Brooksby of Mesa, Arizona. Think of a common eight-letter word in which the first three letters spell a word and the fifth, sixth, and seventh letters also spell a word. And these two little words mean the same thing. And the fourth letter, when rotated 180 degrees, becomes the eighth letter. What word is this? So again, a common eight-letter word, the first three letters and the fifth, sixth, and seventh letters, each spell of word, these two little words mean the same thing, and the fourth letter, when you rotate it 180 degrees, becomes the eighth letter. What word is this? Okay, that sounds a little complicated, but when you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries is Thursday, April 20th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call, and if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Tomorrow morning edition, when ice sheets and glaciers melt, they don't do it gently, like the way an ice cube would, slowly shrinking into a puddle. No, there's noise when that massive ice melts. Melting begets even more melting, and then there's rushing waters and loud cracks and dramatic breakoffs. With temperatures rising due to climate change, scientists warn that disappearing ice will have huge impacts, and not just with rising sea levels. For instance, the lack of ice in the Arctic means warmer waters, and warmer waters mean changes in weather patterns. Hear more about what a future with less ice means for the planet. You can listen tomorrow morning on your phone or computer, or you can just turn on your radio.
musician Questlove found himself struggling with all that downtime during the pandemic lockdown. I'm living a real 24-hour day where the only thing I can look forward to is DJing online for three hours and figuring out what I have to do for Fallon on my iPhone. Amir Questlove Thompson, drummer for The Roots, band leader for Jimmy Fallon, Oscar-winning director of Summer of Soul, was used to being busy, really busy. So he started thinking about something he'd always wanted to do, but didn't think he could actually pull off. In my mind, I'm so obsessed with time travel but I'm one of those nerds that, yeah, I'm sorry. It took me till the pandemic to watch Star Wars, the complete series, and things that nerds are supposed to know already, like nerd one-on-one stuff. I just thought that I, I can't write a book about time travel and stuff. Like, I don't even know what the terms to use. It was suggested that Questlove reconnect with somebody he'd been introduced to a few years back. It was like a play date, like, hey, you guys should be friends, because, you know, Sean at the time was like the the new kid on the block. Like he was New York Times bestselling author. The Sean there is Sean Andre Cosby, better known as S.A. Cosby, writer of gritty crime novels that critics and readers rave about. I mean, Obama put Cosby's book, Razorblade Tears, on his summer reading list, so you know he legit. Cut to the chase, Cosby liked the idea. There aren't really any rules about time travel. It's how far you want to go with it as a creative person, you know, it's like, you know, to quote Star Wars, nobody knows how lightsabers work. They just know they're cool. You know, it's not a Stephen Hawking dissertation. You just got to make it make sense. The duo gave themselves an additional challenge, write the book for some of the toughest audiences around, middle school kids. Now, music does play a role in the book. Here's a little reading from it. We asked Cosby and Questlove to share. Time is like a song. There's a rhythm to it that has been disrupted. If it can't be corrected, all of existence could end in an instant. The Rhythm of Time, that's the title, follows a kid from Philly, Raheem, and his best friend, Kasia. Raheem gets transported from present day all the way back to June 1997. So, I mean, I guess that is old to somebody born in 2010. You see, Raheem just loves a rap group from the 90s that broke up. Questlove says the whole project is kind of rooted in stuff that he wished he had coming up. All of my creative choices in life literally stem from wanting to fill a void that I felt. I mean, I, I would have loved to have found the time machine back in 1986 mm -hmm. to prevent Prince from breaking up the revolution <laughs> in Japan. You know, I would have I would have loved that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But then I thought about it like because I'm also obsessed with the movie Back to the Future, and I know the perils of messing with time. And like, I thought like, what if you saved a group that you loved and then you came back to the future and that group actually wound up being horrible? <laughs> like, because like they yeah. should have broken up. There's some groups that I feel like, yeah, you should have only made four records and then that's it. Sean, I wanted to ask you, because, Quest, you mentioned the rap group that Raheem is obsessed with in the book. And this is a group that was created, you know, for for the book. So it's a fictional group, but it's called For the Hard Way. And you talked about, you know, him trying to get the group from breaking up. Why use that as a plot device? Well, you know, for me, taking everything that, like, what Quest was saying about his childhood, but also me and him are about the same age. And I'm a 90s hip-hop head kid you know i grew up 
on not just the roots, but Wu-Tang and early Jay-Z and, you know, Souls of Mischief and, and all these groups that maybe people today don't really listen to that are really foundational acts in hip-hop. So as a hip-hop head, it was just a really cool way to sort of harken back to those groups that maybe had, like Quest said, one or two or three good albums and what happened to them. And as a fan, you feel like, oh man, I wish they had made on like 10 more albums. But then as an adult, you realize, hey, maybe that was their moment. That was their zenith. And I kind of wanted to use that as a life lesson for Raheem. Sometimes what you think you want is not what you should have. You know, I grew up in the 90s as well. So all of these ideas of these artists as classics, it you know, it can make you feel like, oh, I'm, it, this is classics now? <laughs> I will admit that in my professional life, I probably decided to go full-fledged with this because I also want to get rid of my fear of communicating with anyone born after 2005. <laughs> yeah. You know, because like adults tend to go to their safe zone where they just like talk down to kids and you know, kids don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, that ain't real music. Like, I don't want to be my dad. I remember like, my dad, especially in 91, like like I'd listen to a Tribe Called Quest or Daylight or Public Enemy, and my dad would roll his eyes, and that's not music. And then I would see uh, Quincy Jones's uh, documentary, Listen Up, and wow, like he's just an open book. He's accepting. And in my mind, I was like, man, why can't my dad be like that? And I vowed never, ever to be the grumpy <laughs> old person that does that. A couple weeks ago, I went to a uh, middle grade school uh, to do a, a lecture and there's nothing more terrifying than to try to convince 12 and 13 year olds that you're cool and so it's like <laughs> yeah that's a that's a herculean effort but uh i will say that i also was able to talk about you know my writing journey and and the book uh that you know quest of i have, have done and after the event a young brother came up to me 12 or 13 years old and you know he says to me he's like hey i kind of wanted to be a writer but i didn't know any other any black writers <laughs> oh you want to feel old Questlove the kid I was talking to I said yeah man I met Questlove he's like yeah that's my mom's favorite band I'm no like, I'm everybody's <laughs> grandparents let me put on my shawl and and drink my my uh and drink my herbal tea now as I sit yes. in the corner but uh this kid you know he was so happy to see a black writer he was so happy to see a, a, a writer that looked like him that had made it and so you know I think that's the biggest thing I hope that we can do with this book is inspire kids. So, you know, clearly this is meant to be a series. So I have to ask you both, are, are you guys going to keep working together? Are there going to be more books? Um, so we jumped the gun a little bit. I will say that, yes, we, we are talking about a sequel right now. Both of us are, our plates are so full right now. Like I know that every time I turn around, like Sean has a new book <laughs> coming out every few seconds. <laughs> But, you know, multitasking is probably my greatest occupation. So, yeah, I, I think that we are going to take time out to write our next adventure for uh, Raheem and, and Keja. When you become a certain type of writer and you write in a certain genre, you know, you sort of get typecast. And so I have been very grateful and very, very blessed to have a lot of, you know, really, really great times as a crime writer, great success. But as a creative person, being able to tap into this other part of my brain into this other part of my creativity has been a blessing. And so, yeah, I definitely, we've discussed ideas for Raheem and, and Keja's next adventure. And I love the idea of, 
of these two kids just kind of taking on the world. And uh, I don't think there's anybody who is more full of ideas that I could work with than Amir. You know, I love getting the three o'clock text. You know, we need more dinosaurs, Sean. We need more dinosaurs. <laughs> I love that stuff. That's S.A. Cosby and Quest Love. Their new book is called The Rhythm of Time. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Weekend edition from NPR News. BJ Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof. Streams April 20th on Peacock. And from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. This is 90.9 WBUR, and this is Earth Week. WBUR's The Common podcast has plans each day. Listen tomorrow for a trip to Chinatown and a look at climate resiliency efforts. Find The Common on your podcast app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. In David Grant's new novel, The Year is 1740, a British naval warship sets sail. And this ship is set on some secret mission to capture a Spanish galleon filled with treasure, which was known as the prize of all the oceans. That was the plan anyway. A typhoon, a shipwreck, a mutiny, and then a reckoning. Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.